who call me Tim. The lights go down and shadows fall. Welcome to a world of mysteries, of conspiracies, of hidden and forgotten knowledge. There's a world more strange, more frightening, and more fascinating than most people ever imagined or dared to contemplate. Your parents, your teachers, never told you the whole story, either out of ignorance or fear. Your politicians may know, but they keep their mouths shut. The door is opening. Throw off your chains and blinders, arm yourselves with the truth, and take a walk along the razor sharp precipice of the outer edge. It's that time again. Time to take a walk among the dark and mysterious, frightening, terrifying realm known as the Outer Edge. The Outer Edge. The Outer Edge. (laughs) See, see, no edge of witness jokes that time. No, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I'm disappointed. So, yeah. So anyway, here we are, and uh, it's... uh, it's November the 8th where I am, November the 9th where Tim is, and pretty soon I'll catch up with him, time traveling as I am. And, uh, um, we're just, uh, we're glad to be here with you guys again. We've had some Skype issues as usual. Um, ever since it got Microsoft, it just seems to be a constant thing. Um, so anyway. Well, now, Tim I, was, Howard, I was thinking though that Microsoft had bought Skype quite a while ago. It's been, you know, I don't know how long ago it was, but it, it wasn't that long ago. It just seems like ever since they bought, bought it, it's one thing after another. Uh, needless to say, let's put it this way. I can see Tim and contact Tim in Skype, but he can't see or contact me, which makes no sense at all. Yeah, so, it's, it's, yeah. It's, it's weird. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that we'll be able to get it figured out soon. But we're here now. And and that's what counts, you know. What, yep. lo- love the one you're with, you know. So that's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, we're going to get right into our show today, Mike, because we have such a fantastic guest that I I really I don't want to spend a lot of time with just us, you know, chit chatting back and forth because we have Stan Gordon with us tonight and right. it's just i mean uh we we had stan on in our previous incarnation <laughs> uh what was the name of that show again i i i forgot you know was it um exploring the bizarre no that's not it um uh the excluded middle no i i, I can't remember it's been so long <laughs> I, I don't remember actually but uh, yeah. Well, but uh, uh, I'm 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 just happy to have Stan uh, with us because he's got a new book out right now called "Astonishing Encounters: Pennsylvania's Unknown Creatures." And uh, Stan, if if you've been hiding under a rock, you know he's been researching UFO sightings, Bigfoot encounters, and other mysterious events in Pennsylvania since 1959. And so uh, he, if if there's anyone who who knows what's going on, then it's Stan. And we're going to start out the first part of this program talking about the uh, uh, the Kecksburg incident, since we're coming up on its fiftieth uh, anniversary. Uh, Stan, you're with us right now. It's it's the fiftieth anniversary uh, next month, isn't it? That's correct. It's coming up on December the ninth. Wow. 
you know, I I remember that was in 1965, if if my memory serves me. And I mean, I was you know what, like eight years old, something like that. And I remember that incident very clearly uh, because I I was extremely disappointed uh, living in Central Indiana that uh, that I missed it. Uh, that uh, you know, some people on the I guess the extreme eastern part of the state uh, saw it, uh, but I didn't, and so that I mean that uh, that stuck in my craw for a long, long time. <laughs> and, and Stan, I mean, you were you were what sixteen at the time uh, when it happened? Yes, I was, and uh, I was already, of course, interested in UFOs because my interest started back when I was ten. And people always ask me, how'd you get early involved at such an early age? And, well, my birthday happens to be during the Halloween season. So now it's 56 years I've been doing this research. And on my 10th birthday, my parents gave me an AM radio as a gift. And I was tuning around the radio dial that evening. And because of the Halloween, there were some radio shows talking about unusual incidents. You know, they were discussing haunted houses and ghosts and flying saucers and strange creatures, and it caught my curiosity, and I was listening to these stories, and I'm wondering, are these people making these stories up? Are they telling the truth? So that's what started it all. I began to make frequent trips at our local Greensburg library, read all the books they had on the subject, and I began to scrutinize the newspapers very closely, and if I saw stories on these incidents, I cut them out and made scrapbooks, and as time went on, if I saw a local story where somebody claimed to have seen a UFO, for example, I called them on the phone, and I interviewed them, and I kept records of it. That's how it all began. So here we are. It's 1965. I'm 16 years old. And uh, the night of the incident, how it all began for me was I was tuned into KDK Radio in Pittsburgh, which, of course, is one of the major stations in the country, and they had a, a well-known talk radio show at the time. It was called Contact. And the host of that show was a Lake Mike Levine. But the reason I was tuning in is because he had a guest on that show that night whose name was Frank Edwards, so I'm sure you recognize. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so Frank Edwards was on. And, of course, he had written some books on flying saucers and unusual happenings, and I wanted to hear what Frank Edwards had to say. But most interestingly, from the, almost the beginning of the show and through pretty much the entire show, the, the whole program was focusing on this breaking news of this brilliant fireball, the fiery object that was reported from Ontario, Canada, over a number of states, including Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. And whatever this object was, it apparently came in over the greater Pittsburgh area about 4.47 p.m., so it's almost dark. And apparently multitudes of witnesses over that widespread area and in the Pittsburgh area came in, and uh, they're making phone calls to the local police and the radio and TV stations and newspapers to report what they're seeing, that a lot of people thought it was an airplane that may have been on fire. And uh, that's how it all began. And I remember I was running all evening long. I was running back and forth between the old console TV, the old black and white console, and the radio in the other room trying to get the latest reports of what was going on because as the evening continued on, it was a major news story all over Pittsburgh. And it's being broadcast and probably thousands of people listening to the broadcast, and it got even more exciting that evening as Kenny Gay TV was breaking in with with uh, Bill Burns, who was a well-known reporter at the time, with live reports that the military was now arriving 
in the Kecksburg area, which was that small farming community uh, about 40 miles uh, southeast of Pittsburgh in Westmoreland County, where this object, whatever it was, reportedly may have fallen. And uh, it's a story get much more exciting at that point. And uh, we, we could talk for days about Kecksburg, and uh, so that's how it all began that evening. <laughs> Do you know, did anybody um, uh, uh, take any photographs of it as it was uh, uh, coming down? I seem to remember, I used to have like a newspaper photograph that, sh- that was showing, you know, like a... Uh, um, a fireball or something like that coming down, but I don't. I don't remember offhand if it, it would have been around that time. But uh, uh, I, I, it's since long gone. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the one that you're recalling was a a very widespread national story on a bull light, a big fireball meteor that was seen the the next year, 1966, and there were some very good photographs of that. Um, I think that's what you might be thinking of. But to answer your question. Um, I remember one of probably thousands of correspondence I've received in the 50 years of investigating the case where somebody allegedly took a picture of the thing from an aircraft, a passenger, mm-hmm. but that picture disappeared, <laughs> so we never saw it. And there have been stories and rumors for years, and actually more than rumors because I've interviewed a number of people over the years who told me that they did see black and white photographs of the object down in the woods. Hmm. Interestingly, none of those pictures have ever surfaced. I, I believe, from the information I've heard, that somebody in this area has photographs of some of the Army trucks and personnel and also of the object down in the woods from that time, but for whatever reason, those pictures have never surfaced. Now, going back a little to the story, and there's a lot of the story we can get into. You know, We're just covering bits and pieces here. The late John Murphy was a news director at WHJB Radio in Greensburg, which was a major news source in this area at the time. And they were being deluged with calls as this incident was breaking and witnesses were calling into the station. And John uh, was just finishing up the 6.30 evening news when he got a call from a a woman who was the mother of a young boy who saw saw the thing going down into the Wooder Ravine. And uh, she saw the smoke coming up, and she called in the station to say that this thing they're talking about on the radio, it apparently fell in the woods not far from where they lived, which was actually near Kecksburg. And so John took all the information, and uh, he took her information. He called the state police barracks of Greens, or Troop A barracks, gave them the information, and then he took off to that area. So uh, there's a lot of story we can talk about John Murphy, too, but the, the one little bit of information was very intriguing. There were some things that John apparently never made public. Now, mm-hmm. this I got from his f- wife from that time period, from people he worked at at the station. But apparently he got there about an hour before um, a, a, state tr- a state police investigator, another investigator, got to the scene with the little boy and his mother and, uh, and a small group of other people. And... Uh, he was there when those investigators went down into the woods. The people were not permitted to go down into the woods. They were down there for 16 minutes, and when they came back out of the woods, um, John Murphy approached them, and he asked the uh, trooper, said, you find him down there? And he said, I'm not sure. But then a short time later, when he pushed him again, he said, you better get your information from the Army. Hmm. And John Murphy's thinking, well, what do you, what's this all about? Like, it turned me over to the military. You know, and anyhow, it, the story gets deeper and deeper. But here's the interesting thing. Apparently, John 
Well, first of all, John never told them that apparently he had gone down into the woods before they arrived. And he reportedly saw the object on the ground and took photographs of it. This was according to his wife and people from the station. And apparently he was radioing in from the scene that he had been down in the woods, that he had seen this large metallic kind of acorn-shaped object down in the woods with these unusual hieroglyphic markings on it, and he took photographs. And I talked to one, I believe maybe two people from that station who said they saw the pictures. Those pictures all disappeared. Um, so there's a lot of mystery to this case and a lot of interesting aspects to it. But the thing is, yes, we've heard there were pictures taken. We have never seen any of those pictures. Well, now, was it John Murphy that uh, had an encounter, or not an encounter, but uh, actually saw, uh, you know, oh gosh, what did he call them, like uh, uh, government agents or something like that uh, there at the scene? Well, you're probably talking about the, the men in black visit that a lot of people are talking about. Uh, that's that's so, the that's the one. <laughs> okay, well, anyhow, here, here's what's going on. So John Murphy, as as a newsman, he's documenting all this information that night. There's a lot going on at the scene, a lot of things happening. So he's he's at the scene later that evening, and he's interviewing people and he's gathering all this information, and they're. They decide, he and the staff at the radio station put together a, a special radio program, a documentary called Object in the Woods. But right before it's aired, he apparently, and this is confirmed by others at the station, that these two men in dark suits, apparently government people, came into the station to talk to him. They went into one of the studios, shut the door, and they were in there, I guess, for quite a while. And when they came out, apparently he was very upset and uh, he told at least one of the managers there that these men had confiscated the voice interviews he did with the witnesses. So when they did later broadcast that radio special, it was broadcast in a censored, and there was areas of tape that were completely bleeped out. So that was kind of interesting. And John, who was so gung-ho over this story, and, I mean, this was probably the biggest story of his life, according to so many people, and he was really involved in it, all of a sudden, you know, after the after these guys came in, sometime after the show was aired, he soon pretty much just didn't want to talk about it anymore. So there's some interesting little tidbits that happened during that time. Now, there's been uh, just very recently. I know somebody um, uh, has has come up with a a new, and I'll put quotation marks around it. You know, theory on uh, what the Kecksburg incident was, and they were saying, I think it was a, uh, um, uh, it could possibly have been a, was it a Corona spy satellite? That, uh, I think what you're talking about was, yeah. well, let me give you a little background first. You know, I've been doing this, working on this case now since the night it happened, so this year is 50 years. Mm-hmm. During that time, I've interviewed hundreds of people with information on the case. But also during that time, you know, I, I talked to many people who um, had worked uh, in the space program during the 1960s. I talked to a lot of experts over the years, and... Um, also, back you know, over the many years I did that, looked into that case, that I looked into many of the different both U.S. and Soviet space devices at that time period, and um, and the reason I did that was because there was a, a little bit of similarity in some of the general uh, configurations of some of those um, space vehicles at the time, mm-hmm. but when you t- when you really looked in looked at the the 
the physical makeup, the dimensions, and what reentry capabilities those devices had, most of them you could eliminate pretty well. Because, first of all, let me tell you just a little bit of what, about what people saw, a little history of it, then remind me to get back and answer the question. Right. And as this was occurring that day, um, this object, whatever it was, it comes in over the greater Pittsburgh area, it moves out towards Westmoreland County, moves over the city of Greensburg, moves out towards Route 30, but then it makes a turn to the south. And it's moving uh, along uh, that line through many little rural communities, so people all along that path saw it. It continued out towards uh, the mountains, out towards Laurelville. Uh, Bill Bully Butcher was down in nearby Mammoth. He uh, was working on his car that afternoon. Actually, he was under the dash tuning up the CB radio when he caught the fireball. Uh, looking up out of the uh, window, and he ran out to the road, and they watched it go out towards the mountains of Laurelville. He said it kind of hesitated, made like an S-turn towards Kecksburg. Well, what we now know was that's what it did. It went out towards Laurelville. People all along the area saw it and coming back, and it made another turn, then it dropped down into the Wooded Ravine. Hmm. And the witnesses who saw it go down said it did not come down at a high rate of speed. Like if you had a rantry, a space debris, or a meteor coming in, it just came down almost like it was making like a controlled landing. No parachutes were ever reported at the scene by anybody. Now, here's what we did not know at the time. Apparently, very soon after it fell, some locals went down into the Wooded Ravine and came across this large metallic object semi-buried in the ground. And then a little later... Some of the volunteer firemen came in and came across it as well because what happened was, as the information is coming in from so many people see this thing, the, the volunteer fire departments are alerted and they're setting up a search for a possible downed aircraft in the Kecksburg area. So you had various volunteer fire departments who were responding out to that area. And, um, you know, it wasn't until 1987 that we had the first, actually we found the first eyewitness to the object on the ground. That was lucky because I had a very large public UFO display at the local mall, and thousands of people came in for it, which we had done for a number of years. And I happened to have a little display on Kecksburg there, and one of my associates was there talking to another person. This man, this family happens to walk by, and he's listening in, and he says, excuse me, you're talking about the incident in Kecksburg? And they said, yes. He said, I was on the search team that found the object. Oh, that raised everybody's eyes, and I was away for lunch or something, and they got a hold of me right away and met the fellow. That turned out to be Jim Romansky, who was a young volunteer fireman at the time. And at that point, he said, look, he said, I'll talk to you. I'll give my information. I don't want to get involved. I don't want my family involved. Hmm. And But in 1990, he went public for the first time and went on, uh, on, the t on the TV show for the first time, which was Unsolved Mysteries, and told his story. But anyhow, Jim's story was that his... His small unit uh, was activated. He joined other firemen out of Kecksburg, and he didn't know the area. And he recalled how they uh, put the firemen in different trucks and left them off along the perimeter, along this large wooded, along the fields going up to this large wooded area. And um, they had walkie-talkies. And he said they weren't out there very long when they got a radio call that another team had uh, come across the objects. So they hurried over to that location. And they're standing on a little embankment looking down at this thing only a few feet away, which they could easily have touched it. And they're walking all around the thing, examining it. Well, the thing that's interesting about Jim was, later in his whole life, 
he worked as, as a machinist, and he was very familiar with working with metals. And Jim told me back years ago, he said, he said, this was one solid piece of metal. Now, it's semi-buried in the ground. There's dirt and debris around it, but you can see the part of it sticking up out of the ground. You got a pretty good idea of what it looked like. He said this thing looked like a big metallic acorn shape. It was one solid piece of metal, kind of an off-gold bronze color. But he said he saw no rivet marks, no weld marks, no seams, no fuselage, no windows. And at the bottom... The back part of the thing, which is raised up like the back part you'd have on your acorn, he said it was very defined what appeared to be symbols. And he, from what he could remember, just from memory, got to remember, it's dark, he only has a flashlight, and they didn't get a lot of time to examine the thing. And uh, he spent years in libraries looking up ancient writings. He said the closest thing he could find was ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. Luckily, because of his background, he was familiar with Cyrillic, so he knew it was not uh, Soviet, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but the point he tried to, made to me was this thing is 10 to 12 feet or more in length, about 8 to 10 feet in diameter. It's one solid piece of metal, all the same color, and it, it was very strange. But he said it was big enough for a, for a full-size grown man to stand up and move around inside of this thing. And he always stuck with that. And, of course, you know, there were other witnesses who saw it, both on the ground as well as on the flatbed tractor trailer, the military flatbed tractor trailer, where apparently it was taken from the seat about 1 o'clock in the morning. And uh, so that's interesting. So anyhow, you know, listening to the different reports from different eyewitnesses over the years of what they saw and how this thing maneuvered and what it looked like and comparing it to a lot of the historical U.S and Soviet devices from that time period, um, never found anything that really you could directly tie this in. Now, of course, the one thing that was of interest was Cosmos 96, which had been, you know, thought of for years as somehow possibly related to this thing because Cosmos 96 was a Soviet Venus probe that had a technical malfunction and it ran into the Earth's atmosphere at 3.18 a.m. in the morning over Canada on the same date but this happened about 4.47 in the afternoon. So there was always some speculation that could this thing somehow be involved with this. And um, But we looked at a lot of data on Cosmos 96, and different people who were involved in the field over the years were talked to about this. And that it, it only had a probe about three feet in diameter, for one thing, and it didn't have the capability to come down slowly and make turns and things along that line. So... You know, that was always of interest, and um, back, as you might recall, and I think it was 2002, the the Sci-Fi Channel um, backed an investigation uh, for the Coalition of Freedom of Information, which Leslie Kane, the investigative reporter, she was leading the that research, and they chose the Kexpert case to start off to do a very detailed investigation. They put a lot of effort into it. And they, uh, you know, they were able to pursue some leads that I couldn't, because I was limited what I could do, and uh, I was doing quite a bit. But there was a lot of things I just didn't have the capability to do. For example, they tracked down some of the Air Force personnel who were uh, involved uh, with the Kexpert case. Hmm. And um, but among the experts they talked to, uh, Leslie got a hold of uh, Nicholas L. Johnson, who was the chief scientist for orbital debris at the NASA Johnson Space Center. 
And, of course, he's recognized internationally as a leading authority on orbital debris and foreign space systems. And what she did, she requested him to examine the orbital data for Cosmos 96 and see if there could be any connection between the two. And uh, so anyhow, just to make the story short, uh, he pretty much eliminated the fact that uh, no debris from Cosmos 96 could have landed in Pennsylvania or anywhere around 4.45 that afternoon in Pennsylvania. But also, which was very intriguing, you know, he had access to lots of data. And probably a lot of information a lot of people didn't have access to. And he went right in. And by the way, I'm, this is, I'm quoting some of this from Leslie Kane's very detailed account on her investigation, um, and the College for Information, uh, investigation on Kecksburg. It was in the IUR, the International UFO Reporter, Volume 30, Number 1. And as she's discussing what else, Nicholas Johnson told her, she goes on to say that even more intriguing than the fact that a Kecksburg object could not have been any part of Cosmos 96 is that Johnson stated that 96 was the only catalog object to re-enter on December 9th and that no other man-made object from any country came down that day. Hmm. Um, he went on to explain that anything not catalog would have been so small that it would not have survived re-entry and anything larger would have been detected. And it's in quote, I, I cannot absolutely confirm that it was not some completely unreported event, but the chances of that are virtually nil. Johnson said, you can't launch something without somebody else seeing it. But by 1965, the U.S. and the Soviets were both reporting their launches. And actually, what else he continued to do, which is mentioned here, he did look into the possibility that maybe this was one of our very secretive U.S. reconnaissance satellite uh, film canisters that were dropped back in those days. They were dropped and uh, they were recovered. Uh, they were dropped down in parachutes and they were recovered by special type of aircraft that uh, snagged the capsules and then the film was analyzed later on. But what he was able to do, he was able to get all the recent uh, CIA declassified data on the reconnaissance flights and he checked the launch and the retrieval times and determined there was no capsules that would have found anywhere in that area that day as well. So that's kind of interesting. And then what, what you're referring to, of course, is um, in October of this year, uh, John Ventry, who's the Pennsylvania MUFON State Director, and I believe a fellow named Owen Eichler, who I don't recall ever talking with, possibly, but I don't recall. Anyhow, they released a report that they believe that they found some information which suggested possibly this GE Mark II reentry uh, vehicle may have been responsible for the object that fell, you know, near Kecksburg. So I was very interested in it. I, I was aware of other Mark series devices. and uh, But anyhow, you know, the first thing I did, I took a look at the photo, the picture he sent. Have you seen the picture, by the way? Yes. Okay. Well, as soon as I looked at it, you know, it looks similar to some of the other devices I had seen over that time, but it did not look to me like what witnesses told me they saw at Kecksburg in 1965. So what I did, because I didn't see the object, of course, um... I got a hold of uh, Jim Romansky, and, you know, it's unfortunate, you know, because a lot of the major witnesses are now deceased on the case, and a lot of them are now up in age, and a lot of them are in very bad health. But I got a hold of Jim. He had not heard anything about this uh, new theory, but I asked him to take a look at the picture of what was posted of the GE Mark II reentry vehicle. 
and he took a look at it, and his comments were, not even close, no comparison. Hmm. You can see it's man-made and constructed. He told me again that the object he saw was not constructed like this. He stated that what he saw looked like one piece of metal, looked like it was forged using liquid metal and poured into the acorn-shaped mold. He said, this thing you could not stand up inside of, the acorn you quit. He said that the acorn-shaped object he saw was at least twice as big, if not bigger, than the object he saw in the photo. So that's coming from somebody that stood a few feet away from it, and... It, it leads me to believe there's still a lot more of this mystery, and there's a lot more of this case than a lot of people are aware of. There's still details that I still have not released yet because I'm right. still trying to get confirmation. For example, well, Stan, well, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry, I, I was just going to ask you that you know, with all this talk about reentry vehicles and so forth, uh, and, and this focus on this being uh, a, a spacecraft. What do you think about the theories out there that this may actually be the uh, the, the Nazi Bell? Well. Here's the, and this is what I was going to tell you, you know, over the years, and this is why this, when this report came out, it really wasn't anything new to me, it's because over the years, there have been numerous people that have contacted me, uh, with their, uh, different information that they believe they were able to reveal the origin of the Kexper object. This goes back many, many years. Um, for example, one of the first things we heard years ago was from a witness, uh, whose family was interviewed by an Air Force officer pertaining to Kecksburg, and they t- I was told that the Air Force officer told them that what fell in Kecksburg was a Gemini capsule that had been expelled in the area. And, of course, we know that was never the case. Um, another man contacted me, and he was certain, because apparently of a project he worked on, that it was some type of projectile that was fired from a giant gun from a railroad car in Canada, uh, there was another person who looked into a very secret, claimed it was a very secretive Soviet space pro, uh, project, not, not Cosmos 96. He was certain it was that. Another man contacted me and said it was another secretive U.S. space project, not the GE Mark II. And another guy was certain that it was an, uh, a Soviet ICBM that went out of control. And it would, goes on and on and on. And then, right. of course, in more recent years, when the more popular theories is that there was the Glock, the Nazi Bell. Right. And of course, it wasn't until recent years as books have come out and some TV shows have come out on the subject that people began to contact me about it. Prior to that, there was no no noise about it whatsoever. And and I keep an open mind to all possibilities as to what Kecksburg was, because you know I've said for years and years that Whatever the thing was, it could possibly have been a very advanced, very secretive, man-made space device with some reentry control capability, or it could be extraterrestrial. I, I keep it up in mind all possibilities. But also, one thing I wanted to point out, here's one of the things we didn't make a, uh, really talk about a lot, even though it was out there subtly, is that certain witnesses, and it was few, certain witnesses were in a position to see this object up pretty close. What they also saw that wasn't well known was the fact that they saw what appeared to be a rounded protuberance that extended out at the front of the object, which a lot of people didn't know that. And, of course, that's something you're not seeing, again, on the GE Mark II reentry vehicle. Uh, the size is also quite a difference. If you go, in fact, if you look at the, um, you can see pictures of this uh, 
Mark II on at least two websites, but if you go to the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum and take a look at their information on it, um, they give dimensions as five foot by five foot two inches. And mm -hmm. as Jim said, what he saw appeared to be much larger. All right, gentlemen, well, this is a good time for us to stop and take our first break of the evening, so we will continue our conversation with Stan Gordon in just a few minutes. You're listening to The Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. We'll be right back. It is about the implementation of the mark of the beast. I spoke to you about that, I think, two weeks ago. We addressed Revelation chapter 13, verses 16, 17, and 18. And he calls it all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hands, or in their foreheads, that no man might buy or sell, say he had the mark or the name, or the number of the beast. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. Bible Spells 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 Here for the first time in the inspired pages of Bible Spells, Reverend William Orabello unveils a concealed code hidden throughout the Holy Scriptures that can bring you an abundance of money, personal success, as well as love, good luck, healing, happiness, and protection of your home as well as loved ones. More important than the Bible code are Nostradamus' prophecies. This secret code was revealed to Reverend Orabello during an encounter with divine supernatural beings who changed his life forever. Now you can learn this unique system yourself to materialize all of your personal needs and influence others. Order William Orabello's Bible Spells from Amazon.com or get your copy, a free Bizarre Bazaar subscription as well as a bonus companion DVD for $20 with free shipping and handling by calling 646-331-6777. 646-331-6777. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton and I'm proud to be a book person. How do I choose a book? Sometimes it's the cover, sometimes it's the title. I guess I'm pretty visual. If a book's really impressing me and the writing is really good, I will peek and see what the last paragraph is. Because the endings of books should rock you. I am a book person. And if you're a book person too, read to a child and spark a lifetime of ambition. Join me at bookpeopleunite.org because reading is fundamental. A public service announcement brought to you by Reading is Fundamental, Library of Congress, and the Ad Council. Green light. Hey girl, school zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! <gasps> it's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text, stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Driving has a rhythm all its own. Don't wreck it with the text. Before you get behind the wheel, silence your phone. Or better yet, designate a texter. For more text-free driving tips, visit stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Green light. Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. 
Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! <gasps> it's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text, stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Join the club that gives you stuff. Hey, thanks! Radio Loyalty. Here's how it works. Just click on the Radio Loyalty banner right now and sign up. Then, you keep on listening like you already do. But now, you earn points. Those points add up, and you can trade them in for stuff in the Radio Loyalty store. Earn more points by sharing your station with friends on Facebook and Twitter, answering surveys, and by using the apps in the new player's app store. Pretty simple, right? Radio Loyalty. Click that banner to join now. You're listening to the Outer Edge Radio with William Michael Mott and Tim Schwartz, only on PSN Radio. Welcome back to the Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. Tonight we're talking with Stan Gordon. And uh, right now we're talking about the Kecksburg incident and the possibility that uh, the the object that, uh, that fell out in the woods there might have been the Nazi bell. So if you think about the size of the, of the Glock, the, what was it called, the Glock? The bell. You think about this thing. I mean, it was larger, wasn't it? Wasn't it also of a larger dimension? I, you know, I, I've, I am no expert on the Glock, and I read some things about it. I talked to different people who claim they know a lot about it, yeah. and I, I've heard some variations in the size. Uh, the picture that I've seen of what allegedly the actual bell looked like, in fact, looks next to nothing like the Kecksburg object. Um, so it, it all and I guess you know depends who you talk to. I mean, I looked at a lot of information on the Glock, and from what I can see, it's a very interesting theory. But I've seen no evidence it became an actual working right. project. Well, what bothers me about the whole Glock theory is that they want to tie it into time travel. Yeah, and you know, I still have a lot of problems with various time travel theories, honestly, because if you travel in time. Wherever you end up is not going to be the location of where the planet was when you left. In other words, you're going to end up somewhere out in interstellar space because the planet has moved since you traveled. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, just because you travel in time doesn't mean that you travel, that, that, that you're going to stay with the, the planet that you left because you're traveling in time, not space. Yeah. So, um, the, the whole idea that this is the Nazi bell Travel through time and then coming back to Earth and crashing or whatever—it it just doesn't ring logical to me. Uh, well, from what I can tell from the people I've talked to, you know, and looked at the information on it, the Bell, if it did exist, was not a a maneuverable flying vehicle of some type. And whatever this object was, it appeared to be moving, you know, relatively slowly. It was making change in direction along its path, and it made a slow descent. Yeah. Slow descent. Interesting. Obviously, though, um, according to the eyewitnesses, somebody must have been aware of it coming down because there ended up being a military presence at the site relatively quickly. 
Yeah, and it's very likely that, yes, they were tracking it by radar. I, I learned this from various sources over the years. Uh, officially, it was not being tracked by radar. It was all visual. Various sources told me, including one just in the last several months, that gave me some pretty good information that, yes, it was being tracked. And uh, so that would be... That would make logical how they were able to get some of these teams activated. You got to remember, this was during Vietnam. There was a lot of army armories in different states here in Pennsylvania. There was a lot of military uh, vehicles and presence and a presence in many states, many areas. So, you know, it it was very possible they could activate at least a small local unit to get there initially because it seems like most of the, of the military was coming in during the next several hours in the evening, which is still relatively quickly. And uh, But, you know, some witnesses swear that within the hour after it fell, they began to see a, a minor military presence in the area. That may have been an Army jeep riding around the area looking around. The interesting thing is you could not possibly have seen the impact site from any, any surrounding or any road in the area. Somebody would have to have taken you down into the wooded ravine to see where it fell. If unless you were standing right there, you couldn't possibly see it from any of the roads or hillsides. So the military guys could have been running around and looking for where it came down. They would not have possibly been able to see it. So now, um, over the years, has anybody ever indicated to you where it may have ended up after it uh, was carted away from Kecksburg? Oh, yeah. Well, I know exactly where it ended up. Um, in, in the summer of 1990, before I did the Unsolved Mysteries TV show, uh, a man approached me, uh, was able to check his background out, sock verification. He told me, he said he was a part of the Air, Air Police, Air Force Security Police, that guarded the object when it came in from Pennsylvania during the early morning hours of December 10th. So we know it left Kecksburg around 1 o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. He said he was at Lockbourne Air Force Base outside of Columbus, Ohio, that the military flatbed tractor-trailer truck came into the entrance of the base that's not normally used. He did not know, but another person also confirmed that to me. They backed into a hangar, and they set up a security perimeter. And he said... The, the security was extremely tight. He said they were given a shoot-to-kill order to anybody approach that hangar without the proper clearance. Now, he said he didn't stay on that team much longer, but he heard it didn't stay on the base very long, and it continued on to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So later, uh, in fact, after the Unsolved Mysteries TV show aired, I received multitudes of new leads on the case from all over the country. Hmm. And one of the leads was from a fella, we call Myron, we call him, who's now unfortunately deceased. And Myron told me how he worked for a large supply house in Ohio at the time and how a Navy officer came to the supply house to order a large quantity of a special type of glazed engineering brick to be sent to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. This was probably a few days after the thing had been recovered in Pennsylvania. And um, anyhow, it, it's a long story, interesting story. A second truck driver who initially wouldn't talk about it later did confirm the fact that, yes, he was with Myron. And, in fact, he was there with the first load of, of bricks the day before he and Myron went there. And on the day that he was there, the military flatbed was sitting outside of this warehouse with the object with the tarp over it. The next day when he and Myron returned, 
The flatbed was there, as I recall, but just the tarp and the object was no longer there. However, what was going on, they, these two truckers were told, do your job, just unload the bricks, do your job, and don't be looking around. Well, Myron was very curious, because as he's doing this work, he sees these guys in these white coveralls uh, with sidearms and like rubber gloves and boots, and they're periodically changing their outer clothing, coming in and out of this warehouse building. And he was wondering what's going on, and apparently at one point, when he didn't see anybody around, he ran over and looked inside the building and saw up on scaffolding and ladders going up, he sees that, what other witnesses describe, that big metallic acorn-shaped object with uh, hieroglyphic markings on it or something similar. And he's watching these guys, and apparently they were trying to open this thing up, get inside of it. And he, he asked certain questions, and he must have thought at first he had clearance and then realized he didn't. And uh, basically he was threatened and told, forget about everything you've seen. If you don't, we're going to throw you in jail and th put you in jail and throw away the keys. But in 20 years, this will all be public knowledge. So when he called me after seeing the Unsolved Mysteries TV show, he said, now that it's on TV, I guess I'm allowed to talk about it. And that's how it all began. Hmm. Uh, did you ever hear any indication at all that any kind of bodies or, or individuals recovered? From, okay, from well, this, this is... This is getting to some of the more interesting new things, kind of new things, that we've been learning about over the last several years. I just began more recently to talk more about this. You know, I'm not claiming this is a Roswell. I'm not claiming this thing is extraterrestrial. I keep my, my mind open to all possibilities. I can only present what witnesses have told me. You know, and quite often there's a lot of witnesses I talk to, and and there have been some hoax reports which we've been able to determine, and there's other people, you know, for various reasons they want to talk about it, but um, so I'm, I'm I'm careful as best I can with all the many many people I've been involved with. But anyhow, this is not a case of like Roswell. We had bodies laying on the ground. There have been rumors for years and years that allegedly. Some bodies, maybe two bodies, two or three bodies were found out at the scene. They've only been rumors. We've never had any way to substantiate that. However, when I when I did produce my video documentary, Textbook the Untold Story, and back in 1996 when I was interviewing witnesses and I went to interview Myron. Right. And Myron, you could tell, and he told me that he was in very poor health. And you can see the, some of the interview on my video. And uh, Myron was telling me something. He said, I'm going to tell you something I hadn't told you before. He said, I talked to my son about it the night before. And he said to me, why are you going to even get to tell him? And he said, because I may not be here the next day. And unfortunately, Myron is no longer with us. Um, Myron went on to tell me that when he entered that warehouse building where the object was up on the scaffolding that day, he saw something other than just um, the object, which is up on the scaffolding, and the ladder's going up. He said there was kind of a, a parachute kind of draped over the top of it from high up, and um, anyhow, uh, it was kind of covering up so you couldn't see it as well. There wasn't a, really a lot of good light in there. And um, anyhow, what he said was the fact that um, there was a workbench in there. And... Uh, on that workbench, he said there was a body. Now, 
what he went on to say was the fact that um, he couldn't see much detail. It was a, like a white sheet covering over it. I believe he said it was around four and a half feet tall, somewhere. Again, I'd have to go back in my notes. But all he could see was a left hand hanging down, and he said he could see the three digits and the left arm hanging down, and the skin looked reptilian. Hmm. He said, like a lizard, actually, is what he meant. He said, like a lizard. And uh, anyhow, that's all he would say. He kept saying, you know, it, it was lizard-like skin. And uh, I could never get him to change the story or to stretch the story. And I always thought that, that was fascinating, but, you know, that's the only thing I've ever heard about this. Well, then, going back to 2002... When the Sci-Fi Channel was doing all this investigation, opening this new case with a coalition of free information, and um, anyhow, what uh, was going on at that time when there was a lot of local uh, media coverage of it, and there were more witnesses willing to come forward and uh, tell their stories about what they experienced or information they had at the time. And uh, there was a list of names that I was looking over, and there was one name on there, I'll just call this fellow Joel. And um, Joel's name at that point had come up, I think it was about 13 years before, if I recall. And um, by the way, from what I, I was looking at my notes here, he said that the body he saw on that workbench looked to be about 80 pounds and was, I believe, around four and a half to five feet tall. And uh, had the lizard-like skin. Right. And but anyhow... Um, so I, I see this name, Joel, because that rang a bell me right away, because I remember I contacted him at the time, because the information we had was that Joel had snuck down into the woods, and he was hiding down in the woods close to the object and watching a recovery operation down in the woods. So I contacted him at the time. He wouldn't deny it. He just said his family didn't want to get involved. He didn't want him involved, and he was afraid the government would come after him if he talked about what he saw. So that was it. Now, here, years later, here's his name again. So I contacted Joel, and I made arrangements to go out and interview him as soon as I could. And I went out to meet him, and um, Joel was a very nice guy, but he said, I was just going to call you and cancel it. My wife still doesn't want me involved in this thing. And we sat there for a minutes just talking, and I just gave him some, some basic general information on Kecksburg, and we got to be a little friendlier. And he said, well, now that you're here, I'm about to tell you some of my story. Well, that went on to numerous other interviews. And anyhow, a lot of what he told me was extremely interesting. What he told and I'm just, this is very brief, and again, I don't have my notes in front of me going by memory. He told me how that day him and his brother had seen the object coming over the area and changing directions, and then soon after he heard on the radio that the thing had allegedly fallen over in the Kecksburg area, and he knew that area like many other people did where it fell because a lot of people hunted down there. So he and his brother head out to the area, and I guess they're getting there relatively soon in the evening, a lot longer before a lot of the bigger crowds began to come in. By the way, the, the bigger crowds were hundreds of people that descended on that little farming community after hearing all the news broadcasts and included reporters from all the Pittsburgh area, newspapers, radio, and TV. So they became part of the story themselves. But anyhow, Joel tells me that he told his brother, I'm going to get down down the woods and see if I can find that thing, because he knew the area pretty well. And he, right. his brother said, I'm not going. So he went down himself. He said he had a flashlight, but he didn't use it. He went down, and he said he found the area because 
he saw like his electrical arcing in the woods. Well, that's the same thing that, for example, Bill Bully Bush said he saw from up on what we call is now called Media Road, which is that high area that overlooks all the woods and that whole wooded area and the little village of Kecksburg, so you can see all around that area. And he saw, Bill Bullybush said he saw, like, blue electrical arcing, like kids playing with sparklers down in the woods. And that's right. how he went down and came across the object lying in the woods. So we didn't find Bullybush till a year after we we found uh, Jim Romansky in 87. We, we got a lead that Bill had seen it, but he never came to us or anybody about seeing it at the time. That was 1988. So what's interesting is you had different people who didn't know each other take you in from different vantage points into those thick woods and take me to exactly the same spot in the woods, which is important. Hmm. But anyhow, going back to, to Joel, so Joel tells me he's, he's down in the woods, he, he sees this object, it's semi-buried in the ground, he told me how it was positioned, which was interesting, because it fit in with the other reports, and he said he was hiding down the woods, and he said, he began to hide because he began to hear voices and people began to come in. First he saw what appeared to be probably locals, people just in, you know, regular casual clothes. And then later, others began to come in, and some of them could have been volunteer firemen, too. We don't know that. But he kept moving back further and further into the woods as the military began to show up. And he said, look, he said, I was in the military. I know Army and Air Force, and these were Army and Air Force. But something else he brought up was very interesting to me. And um, apparently there was more than one of these guys, but he said, I don't know if it was, it was um, a congressman or a senator, but like a politician. Like, why would there be a congressman or a senator or a politician down in the woods? I said, what are you talking about? And he said, yeah, he had a, a dress black suit on. He had a dress tie and a dress hat. Mm, and that's crazy. One guy was taking pictures. He called it the hickey. He was taking pictures of the object, the trees that had been knocked down and broken in the area, uh, the ground around there. And um, he said this one guy in particular, he was giving orders to the military. And he said he had to keep moving back, and he kept putting branches around them so they couldn't see him because they had set up two perimeters around the crash site so people couldn't get anywhere near the object. And in case they snuck down in, and he kept having to move back further. But anyhow, as he's watching, he says, he's watching the object. He said a, a military officer jumped on top of the object. And he had a long, like a metal pull, something like a, a police's billy, billy club. And he said, all of a sudden, for whatever reason, he struck the surface of the object. And when he did, he said, moments later, he said, like a hatch opened from the, the top or front of the object, and it opened from right to left. And I believe he told me, he said, you can, hear, you can see like different colors of light coming up and like a whining sound. And he said, all I could see, and, and before he got to this point, his whole emotions changed, his voice started quivering, and he said, I swear to God, sir, I swear to God, sir, there was something inside of that object. Hmm. And all of a sudden, he said, the hatch opens, and from right to left, he said, all I could see was this one long elastic arm. He said, it looked like maybe like silly putty, something his kids used to play with when they were young, and it like was very long and stretching. And all he could see from his position looked like two fingers around the back of the of the hatch. He said there had to be a second arm to close it, but he couldn't see it. And he said moments later, you could hear that thing hitting metal on metal when it closed really hard. 
And he said at that point, that officer, I believe he, he started yelling and jumped off and saying, hurry up, hurry up, we don't have much time. And he said all these soldiers came out and started digging around the object and clearing around it and how they went and strapped this big metal strapping around it and how they had to winch it over to the flatbed because you couldn't bring the trucks right down to the site because of all the trees. So that was very interesting mm -hmm. because it, apparently he never knew about Meyer and, and vice versa. And uh, so, you know, you got these two accounts, and neither one of these people really seem to be trying to gain anything at all. You know, you, I mean, if you're going to talk about finding a body or seeing a body, why wouldn't you give a lot more detail, uh, for one thing? Um, there was a couple other, yeah, there's some other interesting information I've obtained even the last year, which is interesting, and maybe at some point I'll, I'll be able to release it. I'm trying to get more details and more confirmation on it. But there was a couple other things that I have found over the years at the site that night that one uh, possibly more than one person told me they did see soldiers carrying something on a stretcher, but it was too far away to see what it was. That's kind of interesting. And then you've got uh, Bill Weaver, who's a very credible witness. Uh, Bill was a teenager that night who had heard on the radio that something had fallen over in that area, so he was in his dad's vehicle and he ran went over the area, and he found himself on this dirt lane, which this dirt lane is important because it's way on the opposite side of the woods, closest to the impact site, away from where the hundreds of people were up on the hill who were not wouldn't been able to see anything in the dark at that distance away. But those who were on that little dirt road, they witnessed a lot more of the activity and the military activity because that's where a lot of it was taking place over there. But while Bill was over there, he says his big white unmarked panel truck pull up. And out of that panel truck come out four men in what he called moon suits or some type of protective covering. And out of that truck they took uh, some type of box-shaped device, maybe four by five square, on a stretcher-like device, and they took it down to the ravine, down to where the object fell. I'm told that there may have been two of these boxes involved. Now, the box is too small for the object, so what were they going to put inside of that container? So there's a lot of interesting little details here that a lot of people didn't know about, including the fact that I've found out now, and I've got it confirmed after years, of finding a number of independent witnesses that there were two military flatbed tractor trailers on the scene. The one with the object went out about 1 o'clock in the morning. The other one, which had a lower and longer payload covered with a tarp, whatever that was, we understand went to the air base in Pittsburgh. So what was on that truck compared to what was taken out with the object later that morning? So there's a lot of interesting little details here. Well, it seems obvious, though, then, that that military uh, officer knew how to open that craft up because you said that he he struck at it with uh, uh, with a baton or something, and that a door opened up. Right. Well, he didn't strike the area where it opened. He just he just hit the surface of the object. Oh, I see. Okay. And, and it didn't it did it seemed as though it was a shock to him that it happened. So I oh, don't think okay. it had anything to do with it. Okay. It is unusual, though, that it happened to open oh, up. Very strange, yeah. Because you'd think it, when it struck the ground, it would have opened up if it was that easy. Well, we don't know. Again, there's there's so many unanswered questions. We just don't have the answers to it. Mm -hmm. Well, now, right. do you do you think that uh, that it's still sitting somewhere at Wright Patterson? You know, uh, bricked up behind a wall somewhere, or do you think that well, you know at some time it's been carried off to a more secure location? 
Well, we've heard all kind of stories. No way to confirm it. You know, I've heard it in recent years that supposedly it's still there. No way to confirm it. And you also hear the fact that other alleged UFO um, objects that have been recovered have been transported around to different bases, and they move around for security over the years. So we just don't right. know where it's at. Very interesting. Yeah, it really is. Well, uh, gentlemen, uh, it is time for us to uh, uh, to take our break. So why don't we go ahead and uh, we'll take it. And when we uh, when we come back, we'll uh, uh, finish up on Kecksburg, and then uh, let's uh, let's let's talk for the rest of the show, uh, uh, Stan, about uh, some of the more uh, uh, recent uh, activities going on in uh, uh, Pennsylvania with uh, uh, cryptids and and what have you. So this is uh, Tim Schwartz with Mike Mutz. Uh, our guest tonight is Stan Gordon, and you are listening to The Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. Stand by. We will be right back. I would like to direct this to the distinguished members of the panel. You lousy corksuckers. You have violated my fargan rights. This Samanambaching country was founded so that the liberties of common patriotic citizens like me could not be taken away by a bunch of Fargan ice holes like yourselves. Thank you. Put a team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions. Providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology. Preventative maintenance and networking support. Hardware and custom built computers. Let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly, or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call key information solutions now. 954 3374 That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application, Mobile Talk Radio. Imagine having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. You'll be surprised how easy it is to use. So I think what's going on here is that Obama is banking on unemployment falling. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Talk Stream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Conspiracy Journal is your number one source for the hidden world of the weird and strange. We bring you thought-provoking and controversial material for free-thinking individuals who are seeking what is really going on in our world today. Some of this material may adversely affect you. Other pieces are meant to enlighten. Either way, be prepared to be intrigued by such things as the reality of UFOs, ghosts, strange creatures from time and space, hidden conspiracies, Time travel, Nikola Tesla, suppressed technology, and a whole lot more. 
You can find out more by visiting our website at conspiracyjournal.com. There you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter sent directly to your email address. You can also receive our free print catalog. Just send your name and mailing address to mrufo8 at hotmail.com. I'll spell that out for you. M-R-U-F-O, the number 8, at hotmail.com. MrUFO8 at hotmail.com. Find out what they don't want you to know. Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. You're listening to The Outer Edge Radio with William Michael Mott and Tim Schwartz, only on PSN Radio. Welcome back to the Outer Edge. I'm Tim Swartz with Mike Mott, and tonight our guest is Stan Gordon. And right now, we're talking about the uh, the, the Kecksburg incident, uh, which uh, we're coming up uh, next month on uh, December 5th. Am I correct, uh, uh, Stan? That is the 50th anniversary. It's actually December the ninth. December ninth. Okay. Uh, yeah. And uh, so we're going to uh, talk a little bit more about the Kecksburg here. So um, all of the eyewitnesses, and and there's been multiple eyewitnesses to this event. You know, which right. Which is you know, I mean, it's so amazing to me that um, uh, people are all the time talking about Roswell. You know, and, but. Really, nobody saw this happen. Yet here at Kecksburg, you've got something that, I mean, a lot of people saw it come down. A lot of people actually saw it on the ground. And a lot of these people also reported a, a, a military presence that that showed up uh, relatively quickly. So uh, did uh, were there any reports of... Um, you know, like the the military acting uh, uh, aggressively to uh, uh, to these people. You know, like uh, not only you know, like just civilian population, but like say maybe volunteer fire departments. You know, local cops, anything like that. Stan, uh, there's all kind of accounts from that night. I I could uh, we could talk for hours about a lot of these things. One thing, of course, was interesting was the fact that you know as this is being broadcast all over the Pittsburgh area, hundreds of people from all over Western PA descend on the little farming community at Kecksburg to try to see the object down on the woods, but of course they can't get anywhere near the area. Uh, what the military didn't know was the fact that, however, that some of the locals and others did get down there before they arrived. But 
again, you had reporters there from all the major news network from radio tv newspapers so they became witnesses themselves because some of them interacted with the military or saw the military presence so that's something they really couldn't hide even though officially the only government document on the case was the uh, incident that was found in the project blue book file and it's actually listed under acme pa and not kexpert and I believe the reason for that is because I know the Air Force interviewed a family who were involved in the incident. They live within walking distance of where it fell near Kecksburg, but their mailing address is under Acme, PA. And I think that's why they chose that. But, um, you know, that night, a lot of people came in, and some came from a long distance, and a lot of these were teenagers. And this is a very large wooded area, and it's dark, so there was many different vantage points to try to enter to the woods. And I've talked to numerous people who on that night tried to sneak down into the woods, but they were stopped by armed military personnel. Mm. In some cases, however, and some people have gone on public record, they said they were not only stopped by armed soldiers, but soldiers aimed their rifles at them, aimed their weapons at them, to prevent them from going down into the woods. Mm. So where did this jurisdiction come from? And what was so important down the wood they didn't want people to see? I mean, here you have military personnel on other people's private property keeping other civilians off of other people's property. Where did that jurisdiction come from, and what were they hiding down in the woods? Hmm. Yeah, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> yep. That's and, and one, point I, one thing I did want to mention, we were talking earlier about uh, the two men who claimed they saw you know, a, a basically an arm uh, associated with the object. You know, I, and once again, I want to stress, this is what their accounts are. They both appear to be reputable people. You know, they, they weren't out there seeking uh, to get a lot of publicity on this. And uh, anyhow, the, the stories are very interesting when you put them with some of the other accounts that I, I'm aware of. And some things that I have not made avail been available yet because I'm trying to get more verification. But, you know, I want to stress that I'm not saying that what they saw were extraterrestrial beings inside of this craft. I do not know. I have to also wonder, is it possible that there could have been human passengers that, unfortunately, they were inside of this object and there was some type of accident or fire where what they saw... It you know it distorted the skin and it looked different from the lighting they saw it under. I don't know, but I'm just saying we need to keep an open right. mind to the possibility that maybe there was someone or something inside this object. Well, I find it interesting that uh, um, one of the eyewitnesses was was told that uh, this this will all be revealed within in 20 years, and yet here we are coming up on 50 years and we're still just as much in the dark as we were back in 1965. Well, you know, if this was some secretive man-made device, U.S. or Soviet, you know, the technology has changed so much in 50 years. You know, why not just bring it out, let the public see it, and close the case forever? Well, it just makes you wonder that, you know, maybe the people who were originally part of, you know, whatever cover-up, was involved with this have long since passed on and now you know nobody knows what to do with it or or maybe it's just really been generally forgotten and just filed away 
Yeah, well, you know, we did search and search for years for documents. And, again, the only thing I ever turned to was the Project Blue Book file. And, uh, you know, we've we've able to track down you know, certain individuals. Uh, we've got a lot of really interesting information. We've got anonymous tips that seem to have some legitimate information in them. Um, you know, so there, it's... I can just say I I keep an open mind to what this thing was, but there's a lot of mystery that surrounds the case. Hmm. Now the uh, uh, the the documentary that uh, that that you produced, uh, the Kecksburg, the Untold Story, is uh, uh, is there any place that uh, our listeners can uh, can find this and uh, and see it? Yeah, well, they can still purchase it directly from me through my website at StanGordon.info, as well as my books. I believe it's still available through Amazon.com as well. Oh, fantastic. All right. Well, I encourage everyone uh, listening to uh, to take a look at this documentary. I mean, I've I've seen it, and I mean, it's just uh, absolutely fantastic. And uh, it, you know, it it's it, you know, it's one of these it's one of these films that uh, it just uh, it just leaves you wanting to know more. And uh, so, hopefully, right. hopefully, sometime in the future. Uh, more information will come out, and uh, you know maybe we'll be able to uh, uh, to solve this mystery. I, <laughs> I at this point, I sincerely doubt if it's if it's going to be in my lifetime, though. <laughs> really, it's always changing. So, yeah, we just know. never know what that next phone call might be. Here, you know, I've I've been taking calls from the public here since 1969, and right. I. My hotline is active now as it was back back in those days. I get calls here almost every day on current and past reports. But so between that and the many emails I get through my website, it, it's just amazing the phenomenon that goes on out there all year round, every year. And, you know, can you imagine how much is going out there we don't even hear about or people wait for weeks and months and years to report? It's just amazing how much is probably going on out there and we don't even know. Uh, right, exactly. uh, well, you know, I estimated one time that that we probably receive less than ten percent of uh, of of incidents that that happen to people, and you know the other the other ninety percent people are too afraid to talk about it. They're afraid of being laughed at. They don't know who to go to, you know, right. to 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 discuss. Or or you know, a lot of people. Their experience is so outside of their realm of experience that they would just sooner forget about it and just not even deal with it. That's oh right. yeah, and I and I run to people like this all the time. I mean, even the last few weeks, some of the witnesses I've interviewed are people who have seen some very strange things. It's very difficult for them to deal with it. Most of my best witnesses are people who never believed in any of these phenomena to their own personal encounter. And they're having a very tough time dealing with the fact that they saw what they saw. And I, I've been dealing with this for years and years. And as you notice in my books, very rarely do you see me using any names. And that's only with permission or various reasons why I use the public. But most of the witnesses, I don't use their names to protect them for that reason. Because they know they can con- uh, confidentially contact me and know that I'll keep their information confidential with their names and identification. Right. Well... Let me ask you this, and, and this is to, to switch gears off of the Kecksburg incident because I know that you talk about that a lot, but uh, you have a new book out. In your new book, you talk about all sorts of bizarre, anomalous creatures and encounters. You want to tell us a little bit about what you got going on there? Yeah, the, the book, well, you know, I've done my other two books, and this one is basically uh, 
with all kind of cryptids and even things that are very, very bizarre. Um, not only do we have some really amazing Bigfoot encounters, but um, we get into uh, the Thunderbird reports, report of these huge flying creatures with these massive wingspans, and we've been seeing more and more reports in more recent years. Uh, I get into the Black Panther sightings and the mystery wildcats, and I get into uh, even some of the strange water creatures have been seen in the lakes and rivers of Pennsylvania. And then right. I get into the, even the really, really bizarre cases of, like, floating entities and the, the winged humanoid from Butler County. We had a Mothman incident. I, I spoke down at the Mothman Festival again this year down in uh, Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And, you know, that famous case was back in 1966. It was making national news of this huge creature with, you know, 100-foot wingspans, or, uh, excuse me, chasing cars at almost 100 miles an hour, huge wingspan with glowing red eyes. And what a lot of people didn't know is, because I remembered hearing rumors of it at the time, but there was a an incident very similar in the Pittsburgh area, but everything was kept hush-hush. And it was very similar going on at the same time that was happening in West Virginia. And uh, the book just gets into all kind of very, very strange and bizarre creature encounters. And... You know, it, you mentioned you had read my Silent Invasion book, mm -hmm. and that book goes back to the, the the biggest outbreak of UFO and Bigfoot sightings in history that happened here right. in Pennsylvania in 1973 into 1974. And I, I need to give a little history to your listeners if they're not familiar, just to let them know how things unfolded. You know, I, I started going out into the field to do first-hand investigations right after the Kecksburg incident. And um, one thing I found back then, which is the same today, is that initially, whether you're doing with a UFO sighting, a Bigfoot sighting, a cryptid, or other paranormal event, many of the initial details seem to be strange and unusual, but when you take the time to properly investigate the reports, the high percentage of sightings are generally found to be either natural or man-made in origin. But year after year, incidents are occurring, even in recent weeks, that you cannot so easily dismiss. And, right. um, you know, as, as these events were unfolding, uh, like I said, well, a lot of sightings going on back in 1973. 1969, I saw that hotline for the public report sightings. And as that information is coming out locally that I have this UFO hotline, the phone here is ringing off the hook day and night. People are calling in not just about UFOs, but Anything in use from haunted houses to, you know, strange footprints or strange sounds, you name it, the calls were coming in. Well, it became very apparent that this was much more than I could handle on my own. So I decided I was going to try to form a, a volunteer research group, and ho hopefully of research people who could volunteer their time to quickly look into these cases. And I was hoping to right. set up like a quick response group where people could get on the scene while the phenomenon was ongoing or soon after so they could document everything while it was fresh and they could gather evidence, hopefully for labs examined. Well, that's what I did. So in 1970, I founded the first of three volunteer groups, and that was the Westmoreland County UFO Study Group. We started uh, outside in Greensburg, where I live, and we extended to the Pittsburgh area. And it was pretty interesting um, the people that I got involved in the group. And Dr. Heineck, he would have called this the Invisible College because I had scientists and engineers and technicians from, like, Westinghouse, uh, Golf Research, uh, uh, Alcoa Research from colleges and universities, um, 
forensic people. I had former military intelligence people, police officers. Most of these people did it anonymously because they're positions. And many came in very skeptical, but after working with me for months and years into the field, many of these people, and some of these people I still work with today, even though I don't have my groups and we, we still are in touch, um, when you got out there and you began to talk to hundreds of witnesses and you saw the patterns, you saw the emotional response, you saw the very strange animal responses to some of the things you couldn't fabricate, you saw the physical evidence we gathered, you began to realize that there were things going on out there you could not easily dismiss. And, um, you know, anyhow, it, it was an amazing time period, especially with all the Bigfoot activity in the summer of 73. And... Uh, uh, anyhow, you know, just to make things really brief, I had always believed, because of the history of Bigfoot and throughout the country and here in Pennsylvania, that Bigfoot was likely some type of unknown primate. Mm-hmm. But as these events began to come to our attention, and back back in 73, you know, we didn't have the Internet. We didn't have cell phones. It was a lot different time period. And when people saw something or they experienced something, they called the police. And... The police were responding to some of these incidents as well. But, you know, my group by 1973, as these things were unfolding, we had extended to cover the whole state of Pennsylvania. And luckily, we were pretty well set up. And as these events were unfolding, to our own surprise, we were getting referrals from uh, state police and other agencies, from the news media. So we were very busy doing this around our regular jobs. But this was almost like a volunteer job as much time as I was putting into it day and night. And some of the reports coming in were getting very bizarre. For example, we would get a team out to a site where there'd be trails of footprints that would just suddenly stop and disappear when there should have been more foot, more tracks. Hmm. Um, we were getting reports of strange lights or UFOs in a certain area. Within minutes to hours to days later, we'd have a Bigfoot sighting or vice versa. And then we had some of those very bizarre, very well-documented cases of UFOs and Bigfoot seen together at the same time and place. And uh, it just got very, very strange and unusual. And then we had some of the most bizarre incidents with Bigfoot. And some of these cases suggested, as reluctant, I I always say reluctant to say it, that it appears as though Bigfoot may be real, but it's not a normal flesh and blood animal. And the more data that I'm seeing more and more, not just with Bigfoot, but maybe with other cryptids and certain types of UFOs, that for a better term, we appear to be dealing with something that might be interdimensional. We're dealing with a phenomena that has a physical and a non-physical aspect to it. I don't know how it all works. I don't think anybody has all the answers, but it seems to have an energy connection. Under certain conditions, these entities... Some of these objects, if that's what they really are, come into our physical reality. They look physically solid. They can leave evidence at times, and then they're gone. And it's very strange, but, you know, my Silent Invasion book gets into that, and the new Astonishing Encounters book with creatures gets into some very bizarre creature encounters. And some of these cases suggest, again, that whatever these creatures are, they're not a normal living flesh and blood entity. 
Well, now, do you think there's something unique about Pennsylvania uh, because of all these uh, uh, different uh, uh, sightings of, of cryptids, UFOs, and what have you? Or do you think maybe it's, you know, because you've actually gone through the effort of, you know, having a hotline and, and you know, uh, and, and participants who are able to uh, get to locations so quickly? Uh, I mean, you know, what's, what, what's your opinion? Yeah, I, I kind of believe that it's a part of both. I mean, historically, yes, there's been a lot of history in Pennsylvania going back to the Native Americans reporting, you know, uh, Bigfoot encounters. There's been uh, newspaper accounts going back to the 1800s talking about various phenomena. So it's been going on in Pennsylvania for a long time. However, I believe you're probably on the right track. I've thought this for years. You know, Pennsylvania was only one of the only places in the country that since at least 1969 people had a place they could report something unusual, and they knew they wouldn't be allowed at. And that's been active ever since. So it was one of the only places where if they saw something unusual, somebody they could report to somebody and somebody would respond to it. And I, and I think that has a lot to do with a large amount of data that we've gotten, you know, for so many years. But now with the Internet, there's a lot of other groups out there and individuals out but uh, still, no matter where you look at in Pennsylvania, it's very, very active with these kind of reports. The western part of the state, the west area where I'm at, is apparently one of the very, very busiest areas around the country for activity, especially along the Chestnut Ridge. The Chestnut Ridge is a mountain range that's about 100 miles long, extends from Preston County, West Virginia, through Westmoreland, Fayette, Indiana County, in southwest PA. Mm-hmm. Fayette County, yeah, if you've read my books, you'll see Fayette County is mentioned quite a bit of that area. Westmoreland County, Indiana County, those areas, especially those locations along the ridge, for whatever reason, are very busy with reports. Uh, Bigfoot sightings are very active outside of Lake Trobe along the dairy side of the ridge. Why, we don't know. I mean, I've been looking at this for years and years. There's a lot of limestone up there. I mean, there's a non-active earthquake fault going through it, but we've seen nothing outstanding, you know, for that. However, historically, a lot of odd things have been reported, from underground sounds along that part of the ridge to, I remember somebody back in the 60s told me he saw like a like an opening occur along the, the mountainside at one time. I've had people living up in those areas claim they've seen like portals open up. And it's not an area of just... UFOs and Bigfoot, but we get reports of, of those Thunderbird reports, those giant birds with the massive wingspans, strange creatures like Black Panther sightings up there, um, things that fall from the sky, underground sounds, mystery booms, um, and all kind of other really weird events go along all along that Chestnut Ridge. <laughs> you know, I I remember there was an incident probably around the same same time, nineteen seventy three, seventy four, in Ohio, uh, northern Ohio, uh, where a family was being besieged, you know, for a number of nights by Bigfoot type creatures, uh, you know, and these were the creatures that I mean they had like the big big red eyes that uh, didn't appear didn't appear to be reflective, but they were glowing, you know, on their own. Yeah. Exactly. But, well, but the situation, I, the thing that always struck me was that the the people would see, say, like a UFO land in a nearby woods, and as they tried to approach it, all of a sudden they would see these Bigfoot-type creatures on the opposite end of their properties. Right, almost, exactly. Almost like they were trying to draw 
the witnesses away from the UFO sighting. Well, that, that that's not the only place that's happened. Mm-hmm. There have been lots of indications where you have a flap of UFOs on one side of a county, for instance, and at the same time on the other side of the county, all the attention is going to the big hairy monsters that are making themselves known, and then all of a sudden all the activity stops at the same time. Yeah, and then you have some cases like we had back with that big wave in 73, especially in certain areas where this was going on, and these things would keep coming back to some of the locations, like some of the forums, and we staked those areas out for a number of nights. And, uh, you know, there was, like I said, in all the years I've been doing this, I don't know if I mentioned this or not, I've been doing this now 56 years, I have never seen a UFO or a Bigfoot myself. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've been pretty close to a Bigfoot. I've never seen one. In fact, one night on one of the forums where this thing kept coming back, it was interesting because these people had talked about these tremendous screams on the forum and seeing these strange lights on the farm, and soon after seeing the light, they would hear the, the thing screaming, and the Bigfoot would be appearing on the property, and the footprints, and the one particular evening, I remember they called me, we had been out there, and uh, I think it was the same night, I'm not exactly sure, they called and said, come back out to the farm, the thing was just in the barnyard, and we got out there, and the animals were all scared and frightened, you know, that's something I've seen, and so police officers, you can fool people, you can't fool the animals, but especially with even the most vicious dogs, when they're close in close range with a Bigfoot, they they won't bark, they don't move, they shake, they cower, they won't even eat right sometimes uh, for days later. That's something you could not fabricate. Uh, so on this one evening when we get out there, we see the animal reactions. There's footprints, three-toed footprints in the barnyard. There's a big cornfield there. It's dark. And there's something big and heavy running away from us in the cornfield, making this very strange sound. And, you know, back then we determined these things made a number of different sounds. One was like a woman in pain screaming, a baby crying, like somebody out of breath with asthma, which is what the sound I was hearing there, a high-pitched bird whistle. And we found the indication they could mimic almost any kind of sound, including human sounds. But we hear this something big, heavy, running away from us, and we chase after this thing through the cornfield, recording the sound while we're running, but we could never catch up to whatever it was. <laughs> uh, huh. I, I, I tell you, Stan, uh, you you have some balls on you, do <laughs> Go chase it after something like that in the dark, and then try and well, recording it at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we were researchers. You know, it's not like you see today. I mean, we had, we had a lot of scientific people. We had a lot of people. We had, you know, back in those days, there was not a lot of equipment even available. You, you could hardly even buy any infrared equipment, so we built our own. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had a limited amount of equipment. We were doing this out of our own pockets, but we were out there doing real research and investigations. And, you know, I, over the years, I watched a lot of these Bigfoot TV shows, and you got groups of people out there looking for Bigfoot, and then when they think they see something, they won't go after it. <laughs> our position was, you know, we, we wanted to find out what we were dealing with, and that's what we were trying to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd have to say then that if uh, if somebody was wanting the uh, the Bigfoot activity in their area to stop, all they would have to do is invite you to come over and uh, spend a little time there. Well, that may be it, because as soon as I showed up, they seemed to disappear. <laughs> Well, you're not you're not the only one, Stan. I mean, I I have been investigating this stuff for years and years and years, and I have yet to have. Uh, now I've had you know like 
paranormal and, and ghostly types of experiences, but when it comes to uh, seeing UFOs or actually, you know, seeing a, a, a Bigfoot, it's it's always eluded me as well. Right. Well, as your partner had mentioned there, you know, these incidents with UFOs and Bigfoot. Yeah. You know, one thing I want to I want to really express here: one, of all the UFO sightings I've, I've investigated, and which have been probably into the thousands over the years. And, and, again, a lot of things are explainable. Of the unexplained category, I've, I've said for years, my feeling is we're dealing with more than one origin for the unknown category. Maybe right. some of these are extraterrestrial. More and more, I think some of these things might be from another reality, maybe something interdimensional for a better term. Some could be unknown natural phenomena. I do not have the answers. I'm not so sure our government has all the answers, which is maybe one right. reason why they're not able to come out with it, Okay. But I also want to express that with these cases of UFOs and Bigfoot seen together, I, I'm trying to express to people, I'm not saying that these things are extraterrestrial or that they're aliens. I don't know what they are or what correct relationship exists between the two phenomena. Um, you know, and there's many different theories on it, but something is happening here. And most UFO sightings have nothing to do with Bigfoot and vice versa. But... These cases, I know these cases, at least going back to the 70s, have occurred all over the world. And they continue to go on more and more and more. And I've been in touch with many researchers from around the world for many, many years. In the last few years, um, I, I'm hearing that Bigfoot researchers going out into areas where there's been a lot of Bigfoot activity are seeing more UFOs or strange, small, what I call mini UFOs, or small balls of light or, you know, ghost right. lights, I'm calling them orbs, in the areas where there's a lot of Bigfoot activity. So, you know, this kind of thing is going on more and more and more. It's interesting, but, you know, since I wrote my Silent Invasion book, and that's basically what it's all about, all those very, very weird cases we documented with UFOs and Bigfoot and some of the strangest cases with Bigfoot, which suggest that they're not a normal flesh or blood animal. I've had a very big response from around the country and out of the country on the book. And right. many researchers have contacted me and said, you know what, we're so glad you did this because the same things go on in our part of the country as well. But so many researchers out there in the Bigfoot field are reluctant to publish it or even acknowledge it because they don't want to be laughed at by their peers. My position is I don't have the answers, but I'm not going to hide this under the rug and pretend these things don't occur because, you know, there, there's a common pattern here. So many credible people you meet all the time, just normal people are telling you things, are reluctant to tell you, and uh, there's something that's going on here that needs to be looked into. You know, I said years ago, the phenomenon is so strange it protects itself because it's so bizarre. Yeah, that's, uh, to me, the, it, it, it's rather frustrating when you have, say, like, um, you know, uh, Sasquatch investigators who just absolutely refuse to acknowledge a case if there is UFO sightings involved, and vice versa. And uh, it, it, it's just like, well, if we ignore it, then it won't taint our evidence. <laughs> yeah. Yep. But, you know, like I said, when I got involved in this back in 65, and I started looking at the Bigfoot cases around that time period, in 66 anyhow, you know, I always thought these things were a normal, well, a flesh and blood animal that has not been identified at that point. And I keep an open mind again to ask as to what we're dealing with because I don't have the answers. But the more you look into this and you use your rationality, 
it doesn't make sense that if all these studies are going on year after year throughout the country and around the world, and yet nobody's ever come up with a body, something just isn't right here. Yeah, absolutely. And they, these these entities, and speaking specifically about Bigfoot-type creatures, they are at least as intelligent as we are. I mean, how else do they avoid us so totally? How else do they, you know, not leave leave as, as few traces as they do? And how do they appear to anticipate what people are doing? Um, there's another intelligence at work, possibly, that uses them just as we would use uh, any tool set to do what we need. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one thing I uh, do with some of the other talk shows in the, in the past and bringing up something I began to notice several years ago when I was inter- interviewing various type of cryptid witnesses. And again, these are normal, everyday people who just happen to be in the right place at the right time, I guess you could say, to come across these strange creatures. And something that kept coming up um, in some events kind of really struck me, and I thought, this is really fascinating. And one was like, if, if you look at my Astonishing Encounters book, one was that case from Bradford County with a very detailed, really strange, almost a werewolf-type report, uh, something physically changing form. Another one was a case, um, I believe this is the one from West Virginia, of a giant flying creature uh, blocking the roadway, and uh, the wing the wingtips were hitting the end of the road on each side. And uh, just to make the story short, when the witness went back the next day to measure the width of the wingspan, it was 21 feet across. Oh, wow. And uh, and then with some Bigfoot cases. But the thing they brought up was, was so interesting was that they're looking at these creatures at very close range, looking at them. And when at a certain point when they looked at the creature, the creature turned around and looked at the human witness and looked completely startled as though it just realized that it could be seen. Hmm. And I'm thinking, could this be a clue that these things generally are not able to be seen and under a certain condition, suddenly something happens and they're able to be seen by the humans? And I think that's very interesting. You know, it's funny that that you should say that, Stab, because it reminds me of a case that uh, I ran across just very recently where this woman, um, she stepped outside of her front door and standing on the sidewalk just outside of her house, she described it as like a a little man. Uh, His his face was kind of like a a brown and leathery. He was wearing like a a green poncho type of... uh, of, of, of get up with a, a a pointed hat, and you know she she said that she kind of let out a little scream because he looked so unusual. And when she did that, this creature kind of started as well and looked directly at her and said in English, "You can see me." Wow, and, now that's really yeah. fascinating. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and see, that, 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 that echoes fairy lore. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's tons of stories, like we talked about a few weeks ago uh, with the guest with the fairy food thing. Um, there are tons of stories of people who somehow become enabled to see uh, the others, and they'll be somewhere in a, in a public festival or something, and, and they'll, t- they'll talk to one of these beings, and then the creature will say, or the person, even if it looks like a person, will say, you can, you can see me? You know, shocked, and the person will say, yeah, I can see you. And they'll say, what eye do you see me with? And when they tell them, they 
jab their eye out. <laughs> well, you know, something so else I noticed year, years yeah. ago with some UFO cases, we would have like a group of people, and this object was reportedly hovering above them, and only a certain people within the group could see it, and the others could not experience it. Hmm. Yeah, I've wondered for That's years, sad. could it be that certain people have certain abilities that they're able to perceive this phenomena while other people can't, or could it be the phenomena that's attracted to these type of individuals? Hmm. Maybe a little from column A, a little from column B. Yeah. yeah. Like I said, any unanswered questions which we don't have the answers for as of yet. Uh, well, okay. Uh, you were talking about uh, um, uh, um, like Thunderbird types of uh, uh, creatures. I've uh, I've seen you know like over the last year, boy, there's been a lot of reports uh, coming out of uh, Pennsylvania uh, relatively recently with uh, uh, people seeing uh, unknown flying cryptids. Oh yeah, and there's been a long history of them too. But mm-hmm. again, in more recent years, we seem to be getting more reports. And you know, I kind of kind of put them all under the, the Thunderbird category, and some of these are just generally dark, generally dark brown or black bodies on, on these big feathery birds, uh, and you know, it, it's the same with UFO cases. you got to be careful with misidentifications because it's very hard to judge altitude and distance and size, but some of these cases, they were extremely close to the witnesses. For example, more than one case where they are on the road and blocking the vehicle where the, uh, these things were on the road eating roadkill. So they got a really good look at them at close range. Uh, and some of those cases are very, very interesting. <clears throat> some of the reports, however, are something that are more like a giant bat, where there's no feathers, they have leathery skin. So we have some of that. And then some of the witnesses are really reluctant to say anything to you about it, but they're describing something that they said looked prehistoric, like a pterodactyl territory. And uh, so it, it's very strange. You've got differences and yet similarities in the reports over the years. Mm-hmm. And then you get some really weird other cryptid reports. And if you go to my website, uh, stangordon.info, you'll see in one of the um, reports on there, this was very recent. This just occurred, um, the witness estimate is late August or first week of September of this year. So this is up in Butler County, north of Pittsburgh, but it's an area where there's been a lot of history. I've been up there, you know, in the late 60s and the 70s. There was a lot of weird stuff going on, and it has been ever since. Um, but this is a very kind of almost unique entity, yet there's some similarity to some other reports I've, I've mentioned even in my new book. But the witness I've interviewed several times in person and uh, by phone in great detail, very credible person, very shook up and hard and having a problem dealing with what the person observed. But this happened about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. It was a beautiful sunny day, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, coming down this rural road in Butler County, eastern part of the county, and the, the driver's just looking around, looking at the, the area, and then about 15 to 20 feet away, in the, right in front of them, about three-quarters away across the road, the witnesses see something that found it was very hard to describe as a move from right to left ahead of the car. The witness at first thought it was a deer, but then quickly realized it was unlike anything that should ever exist. The first feature caught the attention was it looked like the head of a deer. However, the head was angled straight up, and the head was not real pointy. 
It narrowed at the top and rounded off. The body was similar in color to a deer, appeared very thin, and stood between four to four and a half feet tall. The body appeared smooth and did not have any apparent hair. The being was only observed from the one side and never looked towards the car in this case. So no details could be seen of the face. But the arms looked to be very short and out of proportion to the rest of the body. The arms were, were held close to the chest area. They were The hands were very small, gave the impression they were either being held together or possibly holding something. And the witness found it hard to describe, but there appeared to be something hanging down, possibly some type of fabric that was covering around the leg area, but no legs or feet could be observed. And the driver stated that this being was gliding above the roadway. <laughs> Even stranger was that behind the head, an odd effect was noticed. The witness said it looked sort of like time-lapse picture, like a cartoon when the character is moving too fast and the body can't keep up with it. The witness commented that it looked like the head portion was losing streaks of body matter as it glided across the road. Now, within a couple of seconds, the car reached the location of the road where the creature had been gliding. The driver looked all around, but the being was nowhere in sight. And the witness was stunned. He could not understand how the creature could be gone in several seconds. And the entire observation lasted about seven, eight seconds. And the witness mentioned it was unusual that the creature was, wasn't seen as it came from the right side of the road and was only first seen when it was almost gliding three-quarters of the way across the road ahead. So it's a very right. odd case. And there's a uh, showing of it on my website. It, it almost sounds like it wasn't totally manifested in this reality. It sounds like it's, it was, or else it was an illusion being maintained and sort of falling apart. Very, very strange. Yeah. But I've had other reports of floating, gliding entities. Some seen, right. uh, you know, outside different areas. And I've had some reports uh, inside of people's bedrooms, inside of their homes, and these things just floated around with no legs and went right through the walls. Huh. Right. Yeah. This is, uh, uh, you know, in the old days they were called apparitions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they came in all kinds of forms, all kinds of, you know, variety of, of uh, bizarre forms, even then. Yeah. 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 So there's so many things we deal with all the time. And, and, and we're going to talk about the fact that even in recent months, in recent weeks, there's been a lot of uh, UFO activity going on around Pennsylvania. Um, in the last few years, we're getting more and more reports of these big, jet, almost black, rectangular box-shaped objects seen. And some of them are seen in daylight right above the trees. Now, back, right. um, let's see, back, this was just a few months ago, actually. This was, again, I mentioned to you about Butler County. And uh, this was an incident that happened. Let me see if I can find my report on it here pretty quick. This happened early morning, uh, beautiful morning. I saw a butler and a, a two people down the road. This was uh, near the Allegheny River in April of this year. And it was a beautiful morning, and they saw this flash of light in the sky. And then all of a sudden they see, they said this huge black, like a flying box in the sky, rectangular, appeared to have four rows of windows or indentations on its surface. And they said this thing was like a small little uh, shopping area, shopping center. And they said they estimated this thing between 7,500 and 10,000 feet in the sky. They pulled over and grabbed the camera. There was a big cloud area, a big dark cloud. This thing moved into the cloud. 
They sat there for 45 minutes for it to come out to get a picture and it never exited the cloud again. Hmm. And so there's more reports of that. And we've also been getting more and more reports of um, triangular objects being seen, boomerang triangular objects seen uh, around the Pittsburgh area, western Pennsylvania. Um, one report uh, was outside of, uh, not far from what I think they called New Kensington, up in that general area. This would have been right. in September of this year, and this is about 10.30 in the evening. The witness, who was extremely familiar with medical helicopters, said this was a really bright light towards the west. They could hear this loud sound coming towards them, but the sound was not like any medical helicopter or propeller aircraft and did not have a jet engine sound. It was a very odd sound. And this thing passed right overhead, and they were able to see immediately it was not a helicopter. What the witness said they did, they said they were looking up to the bottom of a very large boomerang-shaped object. It appeared to have evenly spaced, dim, white spotlights around the edge of the underside of the object. Each light had a pale yellow tinge, and they were, all the lights were non-blinking. The underbelly of the object had a greenish tinge to it, almost like the color of an avocado. It's kind of odd. And it continued hmm. to emit this loud noise as it moved toward the east. It banked towards the south and it quickly moved out of sight. And it was no more than about a thousand feet up off the ground. And then more recently, and this is a case I'm still investigating. We're still out there. This happened up in the mountains uh, in Westmoreland County. Uh, this is early October. I'm hearing other reports of, of large triangular objects as well. But this was, again, daylight, uh, beautiful morning. Very rural area, man sitting there drinking coffee and sitting by his window, and all of a sudden it got dark, and he thought some clouds came over, and he went outside, and he said he was looking up to the bottom of this massive, huge, silent, triangular object, maybe 500 feet above the ground. Cool. His dog wouldn't go out. His dog goes everywhere. The dog wouldn't go outside. He grabs his cell phone that was fully charged, went to snap to take a picture, and it instantly died. It would not work. And he went outside and kept watching this thing as it moved just short distance down over some trees that's hovering there. And when he went back in the house, apparently, he saw that all the power had gone out in the house. And we're looking at the property around there, and it appeared to be a, a lot of power shortages, power outages with various equipment on his property. So we're looking into that right now, too. So we'll have more report on that at some point on my website. So, very interesting report. Now, this thing about the cameras failing. Now, I've noticed this for years, but I'm getting some really interesting reports in the last several years of the same thing going on, especially with very low-level, very close-range UFO cases. You know, we, we don't hear about these reports very often in more recent years. We used to hear about what I call the classic low-level UFOs back in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, but you don't hear about them that often. But we have had some cases, and if you like, I'll tell you about one, what I think is one of the best UFO cases that I've seen in a long time that I investigated a couple years ago. Oh, definitely. Yeah, go for it. All right. Well, this was June 1st, uh, 2013. You can go back to my website and you'll find a reports on it. This was on a major highway, Route 30. This is a North Huntington Township, um, probably about 30 miles uh, roughly east of Pittsburgh, and a uh, very populated area. Now, here's a woman and a three-year-old child. The woman, the educated person, did not believe in UFOs until after the experience. Hmm. And 
About 10 o'clock that night, her and the baby are coming out of a store, and I'm heading on Route 30 eastbound, and she just got up a short ways on a four-lane road when all of a sudden she had to stop almost in the middle of the highway. She said, for whatever reason, there was no other cars around at that point. And here, just a short distance in front of her, and about um, 60 feet off the ground is this huge, metallic, rectangular, box-shaped object extending out across all four lanes of the road. It's about uh, I believe 55 feet long. The lights on it are completely unlike navigational lighting on aircraft. It's completely silent. Her baby, three-year-old baby, goes, Mommy, flying iPad in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> and she's on her cell phone talking to somebody, and she's explaining to what she's seeing, and she has to pass underneath this thing. When she goes under it, the, all the major electronics on her dash go up, like the clock goes out, the FM radio goes off the air. Um... She loses her cell phone signal. She tries to take a picture with her iPhone once again, and it would not let her go into the photo mode. Mm. And as she pulls down the road, all the electronics comes back on. Now, her car wasn't that old, and I saw her several months ago, and she told me her car never has worked properly since that night. And uh, so that was a very, very intriguing case. These are the kind of cases that you would think be making national news, but I can tell you, in this case, as well as many of the other ones I get, most of these people have no publicity whatsoever, and that's why you don't hear about it. Well, you know, that's, uh, gosh, I mean, you know, like back in the <laughs> the classic days of uh, UFO sightings, uh, you would hear that all the time about uh, uh, cars being stopped uh, by by UFOs. I mean, it, it it became so iconic. I mean, they used it in um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But it's something you don't hear about very often anymore. I mean, I don't know if uh, if maybe you know, uh, modern electronics in cars, <laughs> you know, has has changed and is impervious to that, or if you just you know people just don't report it anymore. So I'm I'm glad to see you know that that that. You know, you're you're talking about this type of situation still occurring, and, and even least known, and very rarely ever talked about, and because there's not that many cases, but there are a number of them from around the country, is the fact that you've got some Bigfoot cases. I mentioned one of my silent invasion book, and I think there might be one of the astonishing encounters. I'm trying to remember where a Bigfoot walks out in front of a car. And the car experiences mechanical problems while the Bigfoot's in the area. It sputters, loses power, and when the creature leaves the area, it goes back to normal. So, so Stan, uh, what would you say is probably the most interesting of the recent uh, activities that you have been uh, investigating? Uh, you know, we have uh, just a couple minutes left here, so, I mean, you know, something that uh, maybe you can uh, talk about, albeit briefly. <laughs> well... One thing that's been coming up to me from various different people, from different locations, people don't know each other. We're, and even in the last few weeks, we're hearing this from some Bigfoot research and others that we're getting, we've been hearing reports for weeks and weeks now that some of the areas were reporting cryptid activity, some UFO activity, that we're getting a lot of reports of, of low-level military helicopters in the area. And uh, it's kind of interesting now, again, it may have nothing to do with it, mm -hmm. but it's interesting that it seems to be specifically over some of the areas where some of this phenomena is reportedly taking place. And, you know, when you get these different reports from different widespread areas in areas where we know there's activity being reported, 
it kind of makes you wonder if there's some interest in what's happening out there. Again, a lot of things go on year after year. This has been a very steady year for reports. And, uh, you know, I, I do get a lot of reports here. In fact, if people want to call me, I deal mainly in PA reports, but I do get calls from all over the country. Um, my hotline is still available at 724-838-7768. Website is stangordon.info. And email is PAUFO at Comcast.net. All right. Very cool. Yeah. Well, uh, Stan, uh, we are, we only have a few minutes, uh, uh left here. So, uh, why don't you, uh, um, let's see, your, your new book, um, is Astonishing Encounters, Pennsylvania's yep. Unknown Creatures. And as well, you have Silent Invasion, the Pennsylvania UFO Bigfoot case book, Really Mysterious Pennsylvania and Astonishing Encounters, Pennsylvania's Unknown Creatures. And, uh, where can they, uh, where can people find these books? Well, they can get them on Amazon.com, uh, BarnesandNoble.com, other booksellers. And, of course, if they want a personalized signed copy, they can order through my website at StanGordon.info. But they right. keep checking my, my website for updated uh, activities, events. I, I, as you probably know, I've been lecturing, trying to educate the public on this since the late 60s. And I'm very busy doing a lot of lectures uh, around the different states and different areas. And uh, so you keep checking for updates on those type of events and also on sightings and incidents. Uh, so just keep checking back at the website. All right. Well, Stan, All right. we need to wrap up here. So thank you very much for uh, uh, being our guest tonight. Really, uh, uh, always it's fascinating having you on. I just uh, really appreciate you taking your time for us today. And thanks for yep. having me on. We appreciate being on the program again. We appreciate it. Sorry about the Skype problems. All right. Have a good one. Take care. All right. Well, to all of our listeners, thanks again for listening. You uh, uh, Tonight we had Stan Gordon. And next week, you know, who knows? I'm sure it'll be a, uh, a another fascinating episode. So, uh, Mike, take care. Yep. And uh, we'll too. see you again next week. Have a good one. All right. Good night, everyone. Good night.